We're continuing this summer to make our way through, yeah, I'll take it, the book of Colossians. Thank you. We've been doing this all summer, and as we take this prolonged look at one book of the Bible, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, we're seeing how Paul ruthlessly focuses in on Jesus. Everything for Paul comes back to Jesus. And so we're seeking to realize, remember, learn ourselves that all of our lives are lived through him and for him. As we come to the book of Colossians again, I want to invite you to take just a moment to get ready to hear and to listen well to these words. We live with a lot of distractions. We live giving half of our attention to most things. So take this moment to do what you need to, to focus in your head, your heart, your body, to listen well to words from the book we love. Now I'm happy to be suffering for you. I'm completing what is missing from Christ's sufferings with my own body, and I'm doing this for the sake of his body, which is the church. I became a servant of the church by God's commission, which was given to me for you in order to complete God's word. I'm completing it with a secret plan that has been hidden for ages and generations, but which has now been revealed to God's holy people. God wanted to make the glorious riches of this secret plan known among the Gentiles, which is Christ living in you, the hope of glory. This is what we preach as we warn and teach every person with all wisdom so that we might present each one mature in Christ. I work hard and struggle for this goal with his energy, which works in me powerfully. I want you to know how much I struggle for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all who haven't known me personally. My goal is that their hearts would be encouraged and united together in love so that they might have all the riches of assurance that comes with understanding, so that they might have the knowledge of the secret plan of God, namely Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. I'm telling you this so that no one deceives you with convincing arguments. Because even though I'm absent physically, I'm with you in spirit. I'm so happy to see the discipline and stability of your faith in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Who loves a good mystery? There's just something about it that draws us in, isn't there? Whether it's a good suspense or mystery novel to read over the summer, whether it's a good audiobook to keep you alert and awake on a long summer road trip, whether it's one of these true crime podcasts that have been just exploding in popularity, or whether it's a TV show. They tend to be crime dramas these days, but really underneath their mysteries. BBC's Sherlock was one of the best, although CBS's version Elementary was also pretty good. 
There are long-standing franchises like Law and Order with all of their spin-offs. CBS has like 50 different versions of the same show, CSI, NCIS, and all the spin-offs and other versions that are really just the same basic show. But my favorite is and has always been and will always be Angela Lansbury's Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> Anybody with me on that? Thank you. It's getting a little old and dated at this point. But trust me, everything else is still just playing catch-up because nobody writes or solves a mystery like J.B. Fletcher. At some point in Lansbury's character, Jessica Fletcher's uh, arc, somewhere I don't even remember where, she talks about what it's like to write a mystery and how you go about doing it well. And she said, you start at the end. You start with what happened, with who did it, and then you go back in time and you bury the evidence so that as you walk through the book, you're slowly discovering all these pieces, all the twists and turns, and yet still at the end, you're surprised by the outcome. See, when you write a mystery, the end is in view from the beginning. The evidence is there the whole time to be discovered, but without the eyes to see, you will rarely solve a mystery before the writer wants you to. Paul seems to be talking about something similar this morning as he talks about the gospel. He talks about a mystery. Our translation actually said secret plan, but it's the same word, mystery. God has kept this mystery hidden for generations, for ages, but it has now been revealed to God's holy people. And this secret, this mystery, Paul says, is Christ living in you, the hope of glory. Have you ever thought about that as a secret? Yet it was for ages and generations. Because this was God's plan all the way from the beginning. And now that it's been revealed, we can look back and see the evidence all throughout Scripture and history all the clues pointing us forward to Jesus. The end was in sight from the beginning, and yet, like a great episode of Murder, She Wrote, with maybe a little more at stake, we couldn't see it until it was revealed in the end. Now that we look back, it seems so obvious. Everything is pointing to Jesus. We see Jesus in creation when God speaks God's word and it happens. We see Jesus in the Passover lamb who is offered, and when the sin covers the people, they are saved from death. We see Jesus in the tabernacle and the temple, the place where God dwells with God's people. We see Jesus in King David, the man after God's own heart, who is promised that a descendant will sit on the throne of God forever. We see Jesus in the strange description in Isaiah of a suffering servant by whose suffering and punishments we will be made whole. Everything has been pointing to Jesus, but it was hidden along the way. What's more strange still is that that promise often still seems hidden. I was talking with someone this week who said something like, why wouldn't you be a Christian? If what I believe about this is true, if Christ has come, that we may have abundant life, that we may have this hope. If this is true, why wouldn't you follow this? It seems so obvious through the eyes of faith. And yet to some, it's still hidden. 
It's still a mystery and a secret. We know friends and family members who've heard the gospel and yet choose not to believe it. The theologian and and missionary Leslie Newbigin called it an open secret. It's out there. It's been announced. It's being announced and proclaimed. And yet it's only manifest through the eyes of faith. By the mystery of God's will, it's only seen and understood through the eyes of faith. And yet nevertheless, Paul sees it as his commission from God, and I would say it's ours as well, to make that secret known to the world. It's our calling to continue to announce this strange mystery that the God who created everything has become human and fulfilled all those promises about uh, saving us and rescuing us by also fulfilling all those prophecies about suffering and dying and that it's by uniting himself to us that everything that is ours was transferred onto Christ and everything that was Christ's has been given now to us. This secret plan of God is Christ living in you the hope of glory. And Paul talks about making that secret known in two different ways in this passage. He talks about making it known through warning and teaching and through suffering and struggling. Through warning and teaching and through suffering and struggling. It was in verse 28 that Paul says, This is what we preach, that is this secret plan. This is what we preach as we warn and teach every person with all knowledge so that we might present each one mature in Christ. What becomes clear as we see God's secret plan unfolding is that there's a different kind of wisdom at work in God's plan. See, God's plan doesn't look like what our plan would. If we had to save a bunch of our friends from the powers of darkness and make them holy and blameless and and faultless, we probably wouldn't do it by surrendering ourselves to that power. By giving up all of our power, surrendering to darkness, and letting our friends kill us. It's probably not how we do it, right? God's wisdom turns our wisdom upside down, and God's ways turns our lives inside out. Which means that as we come to find our lives in Jesus, that as we come to follow this God of such strange wisdom and plans, and we're going to have to start to live very differently than we might naturally. So as Paul makes this secret plan known, Paul realizes he's going to need to warn and teach every person with all wisdom so that we, the body of Christ, may present each one mature in Christ. That if we're going to reach maturity in Christ, we're going to need this new wisdom and a lot of warning and teaching along the way to stay on Christ's paths. Which means we really, really need each other, right? We need to have mutual care and concern for one another. We need to be invested in each other's lives and into the details of those lives if we're going to encourage one another and love one another, but also to warn and to teach The Christian community, the church, the the body of Christ is there to help each one reach maturity in Jesus. We need each other. And not just to help when we need help, 
but to wonder together about what living faithfully in this world looks like. And yet as Americans and maybe Westerners more generally, we have this sense that even our fellow Christians are not allowed into the private aspects of our lives. That there we're free to do what we want as long as we don't hurt anyone outside of it. But the early church didn't have this view of things. They were intimately a part of each other's lives to speak into their lives and warn and teach and guide each other into maturity in Christ. They spoke into every aspect of each other's lives, from how they use their money to how they think about sex to how they think about suffering and struggling and dying to how they raise kids to how they love their parents. Every aspect of life was game And not so that they could control how each other live or so they could be nosy or judgy about it, but in order to grow together into maturity in Jesus, to find the hope of glory, Christ who lives in us, to live, as Paul said earlier, lives worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him in every way. It's because Jesus is the image of the invisible God, because all things were made through him and for him, and because he now dwells in us, giving us his hope, this hope of glory, the hope that he has, as we read over the last few weeks, brought peace through the blood of his cross, forgiveness and reconciliation through his body in death, that he's brought us now to new, holy, and faultless resurrection life. This is why We give our lives to him and to his ways and why we need the body of Christ, the church, to help us together to reach that maturity as we warn and teach and encourage and love one another until we gain Christ's wisdom, Christ's understanding, Christ's knowledge. One of the ways this secret plan is revealed, Paul says, is by warning and teaching as we help one another to live out in even the most mundane details of our lives what it means that Christ lives in us and what it is to hold the hope of glory. One of the ways we make this secret known is warning and teaching. The other one, though, Paul says, is suffering and struggling. He says it this way, Now I'm happy to be suffering for you, I'm completing what is missing from Christ's suffering with my own body, and I'm doing this for the sake of his body, which is the church. It's a confusing passage, so let's be clear first about what Paul's not saying. Paul's not saying that Christ's death on the cross is somehow insufficient, that it wasn't quite enough, that Paul needs to add to it and perfect it for it to be enough for the church. He's not saying that. He's also not saying that his suffering is the same as Christ's or equal to it or a replacement for it, that he is now a new Jesus or on par with Jesus. He's not saying that either, and we know that from his other writings. So what is he saying? Well, part of this secret plan that no one really saw coming was the connection in Jesus of two sets of promises. On the one hand, there was the promise of the Messiah, this son of David who would ascend to the throne and conquer all of God's enemies once and for all. 
And on the other side, there was these prophecies of a suffering servant, of one who would bear our sin, who would be rejected, and in his suffering and in his injuries, we would somehow be made whole and made clean again. The conquest by suffering that Jesus enacts on the cross is something no one saw coming. It was completely unforeseen and unexpected. And it was and remains a stumbling block for many. What it meant for Jesus to be the Christ was to suffer. In John's Gospel, it's actually there on the cross as Jesus is lifted up that he's glorified. It's there that he's crowned as king. It's in the midst of the agony and the suffering of the cross that we're meant to see his glory. There, he unmasks the powers of this world to be what they really are. And there, he shows us what real power looks like, giving up his life for us in obedience to the Father. And Jesus says in John just the day before he's crucified. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, he says, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you don't belong to the world. I've chosen you out of the world, which is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Paul not only takes this seriously, but seems to be living it. As he writes this letter, he's in prison. And he has, since he's become a Christian, been rejected by many that he loved. He's been betrayed. He's endured countless beatings. He's been stoned twice. He's imprisoned. He says he's known hunger and thirst, cold and nakedness. He's suffered. And now he says he's rejoicing in that suffering for us, the body of Christ. I can't think of much that would sound more strange to us than that. Because in our world, suffering isn't the norm, it's an anomaly. We live with unparalleled comfort and ease and health. We have greater access to health care and better health care than anyone that's come before us. Technological and scientific developments and discoveries have made life easier and more comfortable than it's ever been. Industrial farming and preservation and transportation of food allows us to weather droughts and pestilence. Suffering has become an anomaly in our lives. And because it has... We've come now to view it as something that should be avoided. As something that's categorically bad. That our lives should be free of suffering entirely. And that we should do whatever we can to avoid it. Interesting, isn't it, that in our age, aging and the suffering that comes with decline has become an illness we should try to fix. That disability or genetic illness prescribes in our minds a life of suffering which leads some to justify abortion as a cruel act of compassion somehow. 
that we can't bear to watch our children suffer or struggle, so we bubble wrap their lives physically and emotionally. That because we must avoid suffering, we argue the compassionate thing to do at the end of life is offer the right to die. But what if part of God's secret plan is that our suffering somehow draws us more deeply into the presence of God? What if somehow our suffering draws us more deeply into communion with the body of Christ? What if our suffering somehow deepens us? And what if suffering is precisely the place where we most powerfully bear witness to the hope of Christ in a world lost in darkness? You know, for the first few hundred years of the church's life, Christians greeted martyrdom as joy. They faced death in gruesome conditions as a means of witnessing to the glorious riches of God's secret plan revealed, Christ living in them, and the hope of glory Christ has given to them. How many of us would be willing to do the same? I don't mean that we should go out looking for persecution and martyrdom, but if Jesus is right, when we're following him, it will come. And the more we come to follow Jesus, the stranger we will seem to the world around us. The writer Flannery O'Connor has this great line. She says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. And whether we suffer because of the strange lives we seek to live as we look toward maturity in Christ, or whether we simply struggle because of the world we live in is broken and prone to suffering, how will we embrace it as those who have Christ living in us, as those who profess to have the hope of glory? How will we face suffering when it comes? Will we seek to avoid it or numb it or run from it? Or will we face it, even embrace it, confident of the hope of Easter, that we have already died with Christ, that we've already been raised to new life in him in our baptisms, that Christ stands with us in our suffering, and that his hope is better than life. Suffering now, maybe more than ever, offers us the opportunity to bear witness to Christ living in us and the hope of glory that he has given to us. I think this is what Paul meant. I think... This is how he could rejoice in suffering, how he could view it as somehow filling up the body of Christ. Because somehow, in his suffering and in his struggling, he was working to reveal the secret plan of God that Christ yearns to live in us and to give us the hope of glory, which is his. We get to come now to these waters of baptism. And here we get to see these promises of God made clear in a different way. That we might come to know the hope that we have, to live the hope that we have, and to truly begin to hope in the hope that we have. So friends, let's come to baptism.